For some time now, we have been involved in an ongoing study of the Apostle Peter's first letter. And we come now to a new chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Those of you that wonder how long it takes to get through a, an epistle of just five chapters, uh, this is evidence we are at a new chapter at least, after many, many months of study, not going too quickly, but wanting to receive the message that God has for us in every portion of Scripture. Our focus is First Peter, and where we are today, again, is at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let me say this about the whole letter. In the five chapters that make up this first epistle, we have, from the quill of the Apostle Peter, some, I think, of the most exquisite language for the great gospel of grace in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, how could we ever hope to sound the depths of what he says back there in chapter 1 at verses 18 and 19? I'll read it for us. You were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Oh, what a salvation this. That a price beyond any possibility of calculation, was actually paid for our redemption. Somehow I sense we live in a generation that needs the grace of God to put the word amazing back into our hearts. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me. Every other issue in the life of believer, every command we have said in recent weeks, any call to obedience that Peter would admonish in his letter is rooted in the blood-stained soil of Golgotha. The grace of God in Christ has redeemed us, yes, and the same abounding grace secures our ultimate destiny while promoting true godliness and keeps all that are His until we are finally home. All of that truth is just in the first chapter. Remember how Peter tells us that we have a living hope even in the worst of times. Why? Because it is the resurrected Christ Himself who is that hope, who is our surety. I could say to you that as long as Jesus lives, there is always more hope. Right from the beginning at chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, remember, we are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation. And then he says, in a future tense, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time at the coming of Christ 
for his bride. I remember when we were studying that portion of Scripture, and we were reminded how through our own generation we're so accustomed to giving a testimony and saying, well, I remember that when I was 12 years old, and that's about how old I was, and I can give that testimony. God, it is grace granted to me, faith to believe, and I embrace Christ as my Savior. But Peter refreshingly talks about a salvation that continues from the time I was 12 in my case and will take me securely all the way through to when Jesus comes. Peter would have believers always focused on their ultimate destiny. That's so important because what is our habit? Our habit is that we can't see the forest for the tree that's in my way today. And we do so get caught up in the circumstances of the present moment. Peter would say, keep this focus Your ultimate destiny, the fact that it is guaranteed, we could use a whole lot more, I think, of that heavenly mindedness. We, I know I do, need an eternal perspective any Monday morning. But at the same time, there is the constant and recurring theme in this epistle that addresses quite head-on the sufferings of the true saints in the here and the now. In other words, Peter does not call us to live a life where some have said we are so heavenly-minded that we end up being of little earthly good. And if that were the case, the gospel would do us little good. The gospel is as much for the here and now as it is the guarantee of our ultimate destiny. You know, we didn't get beyond the first chapter, for example, and Peter says that being distressed by various trials, that means every kind of hard thing, is something that God chooses to use to test, to prove, to grow, to refine like gold the faith that He gave us the very day we first believed. If you are railing against the injustices, the troubles, the heartaches, the losses, the pain, the uncertainties of your tomorrow today, be careful. Scripture really does teach that these are divine appointments and that God is working a purpose. It's really good to ask for the wisdom to get with his program. The predominant theme is the suffering of the saints It continues in the second chapter where he said this, that we find favor with God when bearing up under sorrows. We define the favor of God as being spared any sorrows. Peter says, no, no, we find favor with God when we are bearing up under sorrows. And he says, when suffering unjustly. When what we do, when we do that which is right, as we said the other week, but we get nothing, it seems, but trouble for it in this world. It is in those excruciating circumstances 
that Peter again and again and again lifts before us the cross of Christ. Even more than he does the empty tomb. In verse 21, if you want to glance at that, in chapter 2, here's an eye-opener. Peter says, you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. I don't know when's the last time you looked at the hard thing or the hard issues in your life and said, what a blessing this is. I'm being called of God to discover what it means to follow his example, to walk. Peter uses the literal words in his steps. And that was a blood-stained trail. I'll remind you. This treatise on... Sanctified suffering, if you will, is addressed again in the third chapter. We're sort of reviewing chapters today. In the third chapter, it says, If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. I think at that time I said, this is the blessing that no one really wants. But God says it's a blessing. And we get some instruction. It says here that we do not have to fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, he says. But once again, Peter points to Christ and says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And then he says, and be ready to let people know how it is that you are suffering the way that you are suffering. Let people know that it is in the sufferings of Christ and by Christ dwelling in your heart that you can suffer and still rejoice because of that union with Christ. Like Peter, the Apostle Paul. Learned to embrace every hard thing about being a follower of Christ in this wicked world because he knew and teaches us as Peter does, we would not go deeper into any real meaningful relationship with Jesus apart from experiencing some of the same that Jesus experienced in the way of suffering. I have Philippians 3.10 in mind there. You know, that's a text for many years I identified as my own life first. I must say it is still my life first because it's taking my whole life to see it fulfilled. But here's what Philippians 3.10 says. Many of you know it. The cry of the heart of the redeemed. Oh, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't want the power of Christ's Resurrected life working within them. But who wants the next thing, Paul says, has to be part of this knowing Christ. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the fellowship of his sufferings. And only then can he say, being made conformable to his death. Pastor, what's the real reason? This is happening to me. 
Well, listen, if you're a child of God, the quick, and I suppose could be at times insensitive, answer, there are many things God is doing at one time, but the quick answer, the end answer, the working out of it all is, why? Because the God who redeemed you through the very blood of Christ wants you to become like his son. So the theme of this epistle is good news. It's the gospel, of course, but it is the gospel in light of and applied to what we've already seen, an actual calling to suffer, a divine vocation to suffer while knowing while knowing, aren't you glad he told us, that all such sufferings, great as they may be, are not worthy to compare with the glory that will be revealed to us when Jesus comes. Maybe our deeper problem in our struggle is to be able to have the Holy Spirit convict us enough to reveal our hearts so that we ask the right question. Do I really want to be made more like Jesus or do I just want what I want? The burden of Peter's writing pertains to this life in the meantime. There's a salvation that's ready to be revealed in fullness when Jesus comes. But as I've sometimes used, as you know, in this series, the play on words, what about the mean time? The remainder of our days living in a world, after all, which is no friend to God or His grace. Which is why we have to deal with the problem of worldliness in us. Because to love the world, Jesus says, is to not love me at all. The treatise continues then at the very start of chapter 4. That's where we've come today, verses 1 through 6. It will be our point of focus. So follow along as we... We go further into the mystery of how God redeems suffering for our good, for his glory. Verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time. That's the meantime, folks. The rest of the time in the flesh. No longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Beloved, I'm keenly aware of the weight of this truth. And so I have you pray with me at this time. Heavenly Father, 
wake us up to these truths. We come so often to the scriptures for comfort and encouragement, but frankly, Lord, you know that we sometimes need to be discomforted, even a little discouraged over our bent toward avoiding a costly kind of discipleship, which is, of course, the only kind of discipleship. You said that if we pursue a path of genuine godliness, that we will find suffering. And yet let us hear your perennial challenge that we are, in fact, to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow you. We are chastened by your warning that unless we do enter in to the fellowship of your sufferings, that we may not actually know you at all. Your call upon our lives is more than we could ever do apart from your active grace working in us to will and to do your good pleasure. Grant us that grace this very hour we ask for the greater glory of our Savior and in his worthy name. Amen. Now, there are some issues with the text. Thankfully, not quite as difficult as last week's study, but still requiring some careful handling and worthy of your concentration along with me. So put on those uh, spiritual thinking caps and ask the Lord for an ability to comprehend. For example, it is often the case, usually the case, that when you see a verse of Scripture that begins with the word, therefore, which is where chapter 4 and verse 1 begins, therefore, we know that what will follow must have some direct link to what preceded. But in this case, the word therefore really doesn't link with the previous four verses at the end of chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. Those consumed our attention last uh, Lord's Day. But those verses were actually parenthetical to the key text. The key text being verse 18. Now, some of you are familiar by now with my own style of teaching in a more informal setting than any sermon, like a Thursday morning Bible study or a Wednesday night. Know that I'm doing some parenthetical stuff quite often. Maybe it even frustrates some of you. I don't know. You know that's happening when we make some comments about a particular truth and then you hear your pastor say, by the way, and there goes Pastor down one of those rabbit trails. But then hopefully, more often than not, we come back to the assigned text when you hear me say, where was I? There's an a by the way discussion and then seeking to come back, where was I? Uh, Peter has done something like that, I think, with this word therefore. It is as though he says... Where was I as he begins this new chapter? Oh, yes, he would say, I believe, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 
so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. Those immediate preceding verses being parenthetical and we can leave them aside for now. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, or I could say in terms of personal application to anyone struggling with this, are you suffering some injustice in this falling world? Peter would say, Christ died an unjust death. Actually, it was the just one dying for the unjust, which just so happened to be you and me, so that we could be brought to God. Again, the cross of Christ is lifted right up in the middle of our own struggle. And that's what Peter's doing. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. In order for God's righteous and gracious plan to unfold, the just one must experience the unjust death of the cross. Peter says you ought to arm yourself with that kind of purpose. You ought to look at Christ and then look at your situation, he's saying. Remember, Peter has already told us more than once that Christ is the example. He is the pattern. Uh, he is, in fact, the formula, if you will, for your own sufferings. To arm yourselves is a military term. It is a reminder that the armor of God is given so that when, in this case, we are on the spiritual battlefield of suffering or affliction, we are not to be taken by surprise or ambush. This is exactly what he says further down in the chapter we're in. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, you know, someone says, how could this happen to me? That's our second great question to why did this happen to me? It's like, how could this happen to me? Well, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for God's purpose, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But here's our marching orders, good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Arm yourself to the degree. Here's the good news. That you share the sufferings of Christ. And by the way, that could only be a small degree of suffering compared to Christ. He dares to say, keep on rejoicing. I think he'd also add, because more Christ-likeness at the end of the struggle is going to take place in your life. My whole goal for you is to make you like my son. Now that we see this connection, I trust you see it, between verse 18 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4, we can, I think, better decipher the bit of mystery which I confess is here. Uh, some commentators struggle uh, with this second phrase of verse 1, and I was no exception as I've struggled with this text as well, where it says, quote, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
Now, without burdening you too much, we did that last Lord's Day, so I wouldn't want to burden you too much with the Greek tenses and the structure of these words, but let me just say the English renderings can be confusing to some. I do not believe that this phrase, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, is in any way a reference to the idea that God brings or allows suffering into our lives as a means of getting us to stop sinning. Now, don't misunderstand. I do believe that the peaceable fruit of righteousness is often born out of our trials, but other scriptures would present that case, not this text, in my opinion. What my rather uh, extensive research has yielded from my understanding, and I only pass it on along to you, and heaven will reveal whether we had it right on this particular Sunday. I believe that Peter is in the phrase, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased or is finished with sin, is actually a reference to Christ. It's why it belongs with the therefore that connects us back to verse 18 in the previous chapter. Where Christ is described as dying for sins once for all, it says. If you will keep in mind the cry of victory from the cross, it is what, folks? Finished. Means that the serpent's head has been crushed and our sins before the face of God fully expiated, paid for in the cross work of Christ. So, Peter is saying in a similar way, That Christ suffered and settled the issue of sin's punishment and its dominion in our lives. So, we, in a similar way, arm yourselves with the same purpose, are to reckon ourselves dead to sin as well. Our own cry of purpose is, it too, in us, is finished. So that verse 2 does apply to us, even as it also has the nuance of Christ's resurrection in view. I hope I haven't lost most of you. I know this is a bit convoluted since we are limited by the rules of biblical linguistics, but it means something like this. If I could paraphrase some. Beloved... Christ suffered, and as a result, He's done, He's finished, He ceased in His dealings with, not His sins, but ours. Arm yourself in day-to-day practical terms with the same motif. Have the same purpose, the attitude of heart that Christ had, when regarding your sins, was done with them, conquered them, nailed them to the cross in his own body, buried them in the depths of the sea. So as why, verse 2, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, yes, 
but no longer living for the lust of men, but for the will of God. I could say to most of you, if you were taught well, the beginning of your Christian life, perhaps, Peter's saying, remember your baptism. Peter brought up the issue of baptism, remember, just a few verses ago, chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism is something to be remembered. Remember your baptism. Remember how you were taught that that outward sign was speaking to an inward reality that had to do with nothing less than your identity, your union. Some of us Baptists might even say your immersion. Not so much into water, as Peter says, but into the death the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Realize that when it comes to sin, and boy, is it a problem for us, but when it comes to sin, your baptism and all that it represents, your union with Christ allows you to say what He said on the cross. It's finished. I've taken the more contemporary vernacular for my sermon title. Enough is enough. Oh, that I'd say that more often when the desires and the lusts of my flesh are raging. And that's the lesson for today. To learn by the grace of God to say, enough is enough. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. And so when it comes to my way of life before conversion, which Peter describes in this text, enough is enough. Look at verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the pagans. Gentiles' word is used here. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and every kind of abominable idolatries. Now let me say, probably most of you, since I know most of you, came to Christ... And uh, many, if not most of you, missed out on a lot of that partying described there in verse 3. Uh, frankly, uh, for others of you, since I've heard some testimonies along the way, the very examples that Peter gives are actually not too extreme in your experience. I want you to keep in mind that the first century believers here we're not restrained by a cultural community laced with well-established Judeo-Christian values. The overt sensuality and every kind of abominable depravity was, was all very familiar, very much a part of the former life of those Peter writes to now as by the way, new believers, relatively new believers. Their old life isn't so far behind them. But Peter's point has application to us all. When it comes to our seasons of testing, of suffering, it may be tempting to fall back on sinful ways of coping. 
Because that was what was practiced perhaps for most of one's adult life. Those well-entrenched habits. To cope with life's stresses, one turned to sinful practices. But now, Christ having died for those very sins, enough is enough in the sense that giving ourselves to the desires of our flesh, He says, was for the old life. It was for that old space of time. Now, I know Peter isn't talking about a subjective reality here. That is in terms of our feelings sometimes, because you and I both know, if we're honest, the flesh never says enough. (laughs) The flesh is never satisfied. It'll never admit that it had enough. It'll always say one more, one more, one more time. But Peter is pointing to the objective truth of what it means to be a new creation in Christ. Borrowing, here's Peter again, borrowing from Paul. That to be in Christ is to be a new creation, old things passing away, all things becoming new. Enough is enough. It's an attitude that says, finally, sooner or later, and especially in view of the suffering Savior who cried, it is finished, I say, I don't want to waste any more precious time. Wasted years, wasted years. Oh, how foolish, as I wandered in darkness and fear. Turn around, turn around. God is calling, He's calling you from a life of wasted years. Enough. Is enough. The old ways of coping when stress and suffering comes cannot bring honor or give testimony to the fact that you really are a child of God. Verse 4, what it is saying, many of you know by experience as we move on through these verses. What happens? You say enough is enough. You begin to walk in newness of life saying enough is enough to the old ways. And you are bound to lose your old friends. They remain, of course, in a spiritual blindness and bondage where you once were. And they just don't get it. They don't get you. And many of them won't even like you anymore. That's what it says in verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. Uh, That fancy phrase, excesses of dissipation, that's what I meant by those lyrics, wasted years. It's sort of like living in southwest Florida here toward the end of July, turning up the air conditioner full blast and then rolling down all the windows. Dissipation, waste, 
And you're not living like that anymore. Those who once lived that way or still do when you once did will malign you, he says. You know, the Greek where there can be translated, they will abuse you. If that has ever happened or may happen to you, once again, you are blessed. Even when you're cursed. And you should rejoice because maybe it's true after all. You just may be a real believer and follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. It's kind of cold comfort. Should be cold comfort. Verse 5. Tragically reminds us that our former pagan friends are going to be judged unless they repent in the way that you did when grace was given to you. What should our response be? Well, you cuss me because I'm living a better life now that I'm following the Lord? Well, you can go to... Uh, oh, no. Oh, it is give them the gospel and give it even if they slap you on the cheek of your soul. You ought to be, I ought to be weeping for them. Some of you have experienced this kind of rejection of your precious faith in Christ among members of your own beloved family. God calls it a blessing. This treatise on the cross of Christ and the believer's suffering, now it continues with verse 6 and following, which we will take up. Lord willing, next week. But for now, I want you to stand with me, beloved. Stand with me, please. You know, maybe overt sensuality, drunkenness, carousing, Maybe that was never your style and maybe never your problem before you were a Christian. I certainly hope it isn't one now that you are. But I want to say this. We all still have work to do. I will guarantee we need the dynamics of First Peter's teaching to let the cross of Christ and the gospel of grace teach us each day to say no to sin. Enough is enough of the more subtle sins. Are you ready? Your pride and mine. The fear of man, which too often is more than our Reverence for God. Our unbelief. We like to say, I'm, I'm struggling to trust. Another way of defining that more confrontationally is that if you're struggling to trust, you're still then in unbelief. And then, of course, there is this ferocious, Inherent with our sin nature, dose of our, our basic selfishness, our, our self-absorbed love of our own comfort and a hunger for control. We call Him Lord and then hand Him our agendas. We call it prayer. 
Enough is enough. My cry is, don't let me, Lord, accumulate any more wasted years, months, days, or even hours this week. Deliver us from the lurking evils of our own hearts. We're about to sing the words at hymn 523, so you can be finding it. Let it be a testimony that years maybe you spent in vanity and pride, but may it be a thing in the past. Why would I want to continue Years in vanity and pride, now that I have come to the cross of Calvary and the Savior who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a testimony song. Let's each of us pray in our hearts it be our testimony.